When Jenny and I moved to Kentucky in 1992, we didn't know a soul. Uh, we were big city people who had come from outside of Chicago to small town Kentucky. And Nicholasville in 1992 was a town of 10,000 people. So there were lots of adjustments and we felt so alone. Uh, but we met a couple that lived literally across the street from us in our duplex that had just moved to Nicholasville as well. And we were like, wait a minute, you just moved here too? And they were like, yes. And then we were like, wait a minute, you're from Ohio? We're from Illinois. <gasps> we're Midwesterners, you too? Woo! And then we discovered not only that, but they knew how to play the card game Euchre. <laughs> what? You know the dark card magic of Euchre? Oh my goodness. And then to kick it all off, wait, your wife is in elementary, was an elementary major in college. My wife was an elementary major in college. Like you two, like it was just this big you two connecting moment. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Four Loves says this, friendship arises out of mere companionship when two or more of the companions discover that they have in common some insight or interest or even taste which the others do not share and which till that moment each believed to be his own unique treasure or burden. The typical expression of opening friendship would be something like, wait, what, you two? I thought I was the only one. Now, when we first got together with Lee and Melanie, we found out something else. We found out that Melanie had applied to the same job that Jenny had applied to in Jesuit County Schools. And then we found out that Melanie had also been interviewed for the same job that Jenny interviewed for. And then we found out that Jenny stole Melanie's job. <laughs> and ever since then, Melanie has reminded us of that fact. You took my job, Jenny Vanderpool, right? Now, I've often wondered if Jenny and I had moved to Nicholasville from Chicago in 2019, if we had would have cultivated the friendships that we did all the way back then. And I wonder that because I wonder if, because of technology and social media and texting, if we would have maintained a much stronger technological connection with our Wheaton friends. And we would have been keeping up with them and texting and messaging and seeing pictures of what they were doing back up in Wheaton. And if that would have stalled out for us this kind of drive to meet some new people. I sometimes wonder if it would have been different in 2019 than it was, say, in 1992. Here's what I know about Americans. Americans are lonely. Americans are lonely. We're now five years in a downward trend in life expectancy in the United States that began before the pandemic. We're in a five-year trend of downward life expectancy in the United States that began before the pandemic, okay? A downward trend that's fueled by what doctors and sociologists call deaths of despair, suicide, drug overdose, and alcoholism. Today, roughly 60% of Americans say that they feel lonely on a regular basis. In 2018, only 16% of Americans said they felt attached to their community. And in 2022, only 39% of Americans said that they felt emotionally close to another person. Earlier this year, 
the Surgeon General of the United States issued a white paper, a warning called Our Epidemic of Loneliness and Isolation. It's 85 pages, 85 pages. I read it cover to cover. It has a lot of research that it quotes in this study. But the key thing that they concluded is that chronic loneliness has the same effect on a person's health as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Chronic loneliness has the same effect on a person's health as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. As it turns out, you were made for people. As it turns out, you were made for people. Now, I'm stealing this phrase and a good part of today's message from this book, Made for People, by Justin Early. You should get a copy. But I'm teaching on friendship because friendship matters. And it, just, and it doesn't just matter to you, it actually matters to God. Friendship matters. When you were born, you couldn't walk or talk on your own. When you were born, you couldn't read or write. When you were born, you couldn't even control your own bowel movements. I was reminded of this recently. Mitch and I visited the twins, the latest addition to the Generations family, and I got to hold uh, little Ember in my... Uh, in my arm, on my uh, lap. And when I left, when I got to hand Ember back to her mom and I stood up, the entire right side of my shorts was soaked with pee. <laughs> little Ember has not yet mastered, and she's such a tiny little thing, those diapers just don't work. And so it came all out, all over me, right? But you learned all of those things. You learned how to walk and talk. You learned how to read and write. You learned everything from another human being. You were made for people. In the opening pages of the Bible, we're told the story of our origins, how the universe, life, and human beings came to be, all the result of the act of an intentional, uh, an intentional act of a loving God that exists in the form of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God himself in his very nature or essence is community. And there's a rhythm to this creative act recorded in Genesis. Let the land sprout with vegetation. And God saw that it was very good. Let the lights appear in the sky to separate day from night. And the Lord God saw that it was very good. And then God said, let the waters swarm with fish and other life. And God saw that it was good. And then God said, let the earth produce every sort of animal. And God saw that it was good. And then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. And God saw that it was very good. There's this rhythm, good, this is good, this is good, this is good. And then there's a kicker, and it's in the very next chapter. Then the Lord God said, it is not good. It is not good for the man to be what? Now, wait a minute. Adam is walking with God in the Garden of Eden. This is before sin has entered the world, before they've eaten from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And God is making a statement about the man, and he's saying that the man is what? The man, it is not good for the man to be what? Wow. That's a huge theological statement right there in the opening pages of, Gen of Genesis. Justin Early writes this. He says, this is why you feel like the world is so right when you have friends. 
because something is deeply right when that happens. This is why you also feel like the world is so wrong when friendships are gone or strained or broken. Because if relationships are not right, the world is wrong. Adam walked in the Garden of Eden with an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, Trinitarian God of the universe, the one who simply spoke all of reality into being. That God, and yet somehow, Adam was alone. Adam's condition was not good. Again, you were made not just for God, but for people. So let's see where this goes in Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 and following. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. So the Lord God formed from the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. He brought them to a man to see what he would call them. And the man chose a name for each one. He gave names to all the livestock, all the birds of the sky, and all the wild animals. But there was still no helper just right for him. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. While the man slept, the Lord God took out one of the man's ribs and closed the opening. And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib, and he brought her to the man. At last, the man exclaimed, this one is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from the man. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Now the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. It is not good for Adam to be alone. I will make him an Ezer Kenegdo. Okay, so it is not good for Adam to be alone. I will make for him an Ezer Kenegdo. First of all, Adam cannot comply with the mandate to be fruitful and multiply all by himself. He needs a partner to make that happen. Secondly, there's something that happens in the naming of the animals and the birds that spotlights something Adam does not have that then necessitates or results in the creation of an ezer, connecto. This word ezer means helper, but it means so much more than that. So when my kids were little, when they were three or four years old, I would take them with me on Saturdays to, to do errands. So John, when he was three or four, Jill, Maddie, when they were three and four, they would accompany me. And when I would walk into the bank, those tellers who know me so well would say, oh, Mr. Vanderpool, I see you have a helper today. They were not helping anybody. They couldn't get in and out of the car on their own. And then when I was standing at the bank teller desk, like in trying to fill out paperwork, they would try and escape. That's not helpful. The only person who was helpful in that moment was me giving my wife a break by taking the little rugrats with me to run errands. Okay, that is not what Ezer means. Ezer can also be translated power or sustainer. It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a power comparable to him. It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a sustainer. For him. Um, in the Old Testament, Ezer is applied to God in God's capacity to rescue humanity from circumstances in which they can't save themselves. God is an Ezer. So in other words, if we were to use this word Ezer and paint it on something, I would choose a U.S. Coast Guard helicopter 
You're in the water, your boat has sank, they're lowering your line, a line to save you, and on the side of the helicopter, it simply says, Ezer, your Ezer has arrived. Are you getting the sense of this now? Okay, so that's how critically important Eve is to Adam. And it ends up in verse two, uh, in verse 25 of chapter two. Now the man and his wife were both naked and felt no shame. On one level, this speaks to marriage. What happens between a husband and a wife, totally known, totally vulnerable, and yet totally loved and accepted, no shame. But on another level, this also speaks to a form of friendship. Here's what I want to say to you Americans. We tend to over-sexualize everything. We do. And in the ancient world, people had friends that had a deep bond of kinship, love, forgiveness, togetherness that was not sexual. Don't believe me? Just go back and read some of the journals of the young men who were stuck in trenches fighting for the Germans, Americans, French, and English during World War I. They had a kind of love and kinship with the other guys in those trenches, and there was no hanky-panky going on, okay? So I just want to make that caveat, okay? You were made not just for God, but also for people. Now, I want you to notice something in the next chapter, and I just want to touch on it for a brief moment. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. And one day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat from the fruit of, the, of any of the trees in the garden? You are most vulnerable to the lies of your enemy, the enemy of God, when you're alone. Eve isn't with God in this passage. Eve isn't with Adam in this passage. Eve is alone. And when she's alone, she hears a voice that lies to her. And when you and I are alone, we're going to hear a voice often that lies to us. They don't really care about you. They don't love you. You're not lovable. Like all, whatever lies are true for you, I'm just telling some lies that I've heard in my head sometimes, okay? These lies will be spoken and whispered to you when you're alone. Did God really say? So again, friendship matters doesn't just matter to you, it matters to God. Friendship matters. Listen to what Jesus has to say in John chapter 15. <laughs> there is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you slaves because a master doesn't confide in his slaves. Now you are my friends since I have told you everything the Father has told me. You did not choose me. I chose you. This is my command. Love each other. I call you friends. You did not choose me. I chose you. Unlike every other rabbi in the first century of Judea, Jesus chose his disciples. The way it normally worked is the disciple would say, ooh, I want to be like Paul, or I want to be like Brian, so I'm going to follow them around, and I'm going to study them and live like them, and I'm going to become just like them. Disciples chose their rabbis. But Jesus flips the script. Jesus chooses his disciples who would become his friends, and he chooses a fisherman, several fishermen, a zealot, and a tax collector. In John chapter 15, Jesus knows that his time has come and that he's going to be arrested, 
tried and executed in the worst possible manner. And his friends, he knows that every single one of his friends is going to cut and run. What does Jesus do? Knowing what's about to play out, what does he do? He has a meal with his friends. He celebrates Passover with his friends. And then the same man, the same rabbi who would go off on mountains alone to pray, we see this consistently in the Gospels. That night, that night, what does he say to his friends? Stay with me. I need to pray. I need to pray to my heavenly father. I want you to be with me. I want you to stay with me. Okay? Jesus is everything we are not, everything that we're supposed to be as humans, and yet Jesus invites us into friendship with God. He says this that same night, I am the true grapevine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch of mine that does not produce fruit, and he prunes the branches that do bear fruit, so they will produce even more. You've already been pruned and purified by the message I've given you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it's severed from the vine, and you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. Connected to Jesus, you're connected to God. Friend of Jesus, you're a friend of God. That's how this works. Two things emerge from what Jesus tells us in John chapter 15. Unlike a master-servant relationship, Jesus has made everything known to his disciples. He's fully disclosed himself. Jesus has been honest and vulnerable. The disciples know the real Jesus. Sometimes we'll read about a tell-all about a celebrity. Often it involves the royal family in Britain. A new servant has unleashed a new tell-all, the real Queen Elizabeth, the real Prince William. Sometimes it'll be an American celebrity or a megachurch pastor, right? Oh, here's what it was really like to work for them. And, and you find out they're hypocrites. Not so with Jesus. What we have recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that's him. That's Jesus. We're getting Jesus in the Gospels, the real, fully disclosed, vulnerable Jesus. We see what he did, what he said, how he felt, and we see it so clearly on the pages of the Gospels. So that's the first thing. The second thing that emerges from John chapter 15 is that Jesus remains committed. He's willing to lay down his life for his friends. He lives the life we should live and dies the death that we deserve. It's this inexplicable exchange where Jesus has forgiven our past and committed to our future with him. You were made for people. You were made for people. You were made for people to be fully known and fully loved over the long haul. You were made for people. So in light of that, I want to ask a few questions and offer some practical suggestions. Do you feel lonely on a regular basis? That's happened to me. I have friends. And because I'm a pastor of a church, I have no week that goes by in which somebody doesn't want to see me. <laughs> For better or worse, right? I, I have no end of people that want to sp spend some time with me over a cup of coffee or lunch or whatnot. And yet there have been seasons where it has felt lonely. Do you feel lonely on a regular basis? Do you get upset when you hear about or see photos of friends getting together? Here's what Justin Early says in his book. He says, loneliness is this pain we feel 
precisely because we can remember a time when we were relationally connected. We feel lonely only because we know and we have a sense of a time that was different, okay? And then lastly, it's two o'clock in the morning. Who can you call? Who can you call? So how can you and I take this home? First and foremost, identify some you two people. Uh, who among your church family, among your neighbors, among your coworkers, among parents of your kids, the parents of kids that you hang with or activities with, who in that group are people you have a common interest, insight, or taste with? And I want to offer a suggestion. Many of the people in this room have encountered Jesus just like you have. Many of the people, one of the first things when you're getting to know someone in this church family ought to be this question. Tell me, how did you come to faith? How did you come to faith? What's your faith story? How did you end up here, right? Like, and all of a sudden when they're talking and saying this story and this and that and family and this and this left turn and all of this other stuff, you find out, wait a minute, you too? You too, right? Woven into that is a, this admonishment and that's for people like me. So I, I, since this is church, I'm just gonna be honest. Jenny, you can verify this with Jenny after church. Ask Jenny Vanderpool, does Max, is Max an initiator or a responder? He's a responder. He doesn't initiate anything hardly ever, right? So I know what it is to be a wallflower in the dance. I know this firsthand. But here's what I also know. We've got to take the first step. We've got to initiate. It will be awkward, I promise. Anytime you're initiating, getting to know someone a little better, it's going to be awkward. Going back to 1992 when we first moved here, there was a couple that wanted to get to know us like nobody's business. Their names were Mark and Sue. I worked with Mark in a convenience store. He was engaged. His girlfriend lived in the apartment complex right over here before it became Section 8 housing. So they invite us to dinner the first night. The first night we're getting together and she makes this dinner with broccoli that has sesame seeds on it. Two foods that for me are death. I eat the food because I wanna be polite. It's our first time together after all. But 45 minutes into the meal, I'm curled up on the floor in a fetal position. And I'm like, Jenny, we've got to go home. Do you need to go to the hospital? No, I just need to go home. So, right? Boom. Was that awkward? Was that awkward? Yes. yes. And of course, she had all, I made the wrong food. Oh, my gosh. And they so wanted. So then, to make it even more awkward, like literally a week later, they're getting married. One of the couples has bowed out. And so they ask us, not knowing us that long at all, would you be in our wedding? And I remember these conversations with Jenny, like, we don't know these people that well. Like this is, a, and we're like stand-ins. What is this? Like it just the whole thing was a whole can of what? Awkward. <laughs> Embrace the awkward. <laughs> Embrace the awkward. It's going to be awkward. Just know it going into. So identify some you two people. Secondly, make time and space to cultivate these budding friendships. I know Thursday nights aren't great for you. I know you're tired from work. I know you have kids to put to bed. I know you only have certain windows to do things like laundry and food prep and shopping. And I know that your kids have activities and those are going on all the time. But a clean house and clean laundry isn't as important as friendship. Uh, let me say this this way. Dirty underwear won't kill you, 
but chronic loneliness will. Dirty underwear won't kill you, but chronic loneliness will, okay? And then third, don't just snack on technological connections, but feast on embodied friendships. This is right out of Justin Early's book. So we all know today that eating potato chips and Oreos is snacking. That's snacking. So I can, today, after church, if I chose to, I could eat an entire bag of Lay's potato chips and probably polish off about 15 double stuff or mega stuff Oreo cookies. And I guarantee you that I would feel full. Would I have the nutrients that my body needs? No, but I would feel full because I had just snacked on some delicious Lay's potato chips and Oreo cookies. Mm. Okay. Technological connections are like that. It's like snacking. So you see pictures of your friends, you're posting, you're interacting, you're liking their stuff, they're liking your stuff, you feel full. But an hour later, you don't feel full anymore. You feel alone, right? So recognize technological connections for what they are. Feast on embodied friendship, okay? Uh, embodied friendship works like this. We actually are physical creatures that have a physical part to our reality and a non-physical part to our reality. And we need to sometimes in our ears hear someone say, I love you, or hey bro, I gotcha, or I'm sorry. <laughs> sometimes we actually need a hug. I'm learning how to do this better and better all the time, okay? Sometimes, like, right, these things are important, they matter. Embodied connections matter, and the reason they matter is when you're spending time with a friend, there's all this stuff that's coming out in body language that simply can't be mitigated through a screen or through words on a screen, okay? And it matters to be in people's presence. Here's why this is important. For years, Jenny and I have taken a vacation every year with Jenny's side of the family. I call it Thompson Beach Week. So we go to the Outer Banks of North Carolina, and we've done this for 30-some years. And inevitably, in some years, there's a rip current, a riptide. And this year, there was a riptide. And man, are they getting aggressive about this. So this young lifeguard from Canada, she comes out, blows the whistle, gets everybody out of the water, goes up to her lifeguard stand. She's got a giant flag that says, danger. And she goes like she's a member of the Marine Corps in Iwo Jima, and she plants that flag in the beach. And anytime someone tries to get into the water in that section, she's blowing her whistle and she's telling them to get out of the water because it's a danger. There's a riptide. Riptides actually can be dangerous. <laughs> a few years back, we had a, there was a ball and we were playing with it in the water and it was kind of a strong current that day. And before we knew it, one of us was out a little too far. And Jenny's brother had to go in, former lifeguard himself, and go snag that person. Justin Early in his book says this. He says, look, America, America is like a giant rip current right now. Everything about American life is pulling you out to sea. It's pulling you away from embodied connections. All the technological stuff, all the busyness, all the ways in which we have to work more or take two incomes, or if you're a single parent, like, you know, it's just crazy, everything that's part of America right now. And everything that's part of America is just pulling you out, which is why you need somebody bigger and stronger to bring you out of the rip, out of the rip current. 
That person is Jesus. That person is Jesus. Jesus saves you and gives you a new family comprised of other people he has also saved. Jesus is a friend like no other, and the people in his family are learning the ways of Jesus, a way of love, a way of forgiveness, a way of one anotherness, and boy, is it awkward and messy, <laughs> but they are apprenticing to become more and more like Jesus. You were made for people.